This message is from Grace Church, located in Frisco, a suburb of Dallas-Fort Worth. The Grace Church website is gracechurchfrisco.org. Craig Cabanis, the lead pastor, is the speaker for this message. Come on in and grab a seat, and as you are, please open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5. Thanks again for everybody who came out today. Uh, for the foundation thing, that was an absolute blast uh, just to stand there and to just see uh, what the Lord has provided for us. It was, it was a great time. So thank you. Uh, thanks so much for coming out. Today. It's just great to be together and, and write things. I went around, took a lot of pictures and wrote the things that were written on the, um, on the foundation. Some wonderful, wonderful things that we're hoping for, trusting the Lord for. Let's pray and then I'll uh, jump into this passage tonight. Lord, we come to you tonight, and we need your help. Lord, we always need your help when we open the Scripture, but tonight we pray in an unusual way that you would come with uh, conviction, the grace of conviction, the grace of illumination from your Word, and ultimately the grace of hope that, that, that you are a God who brings freedom into our lives. It is for freedom that Christ uh, has come and set us free. And so we pray for that, Lord. I pray tonight that as the word goes forth, that there would be uh, spiritual chains broken over lives and that you would grant the sweet gift of repentance and the sweet gift of faith and courage that leads us to make radical steps and take radical measures for your glory. I pray that. So, Spirit of God, we just ask you to have your way with us tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, if you're new here, we're in a series uh, called Redeeming Sex. And uh, so we started talking about the purpose of sex and looked at Genesis 1. We talked about the fall and what went wrong and why there's sexual temptation and sexual sin. Uh, We talked about married people and sex. So we taught through actually the whole book, A Song of Solomon, essentially, not not every word, but the big part of it. We did that. And then last week we talked about sex and singles. And uh, tonight I want to talk about pornography. And this has by far been the heaviest burden in this whole series for me as I've prepared for it. Um, it is, it, it really has been just studying and, and thinking about it because it is a, it is an issue that is pervasive in our culture. I, I spent a lot of time studying the subject. I didn't watch pornography this week, but I studied a ton about it. That's for sure. Um, and the statistics, uh, I mean, I read all kinds of statistics and I know you statistics can say whatever you want them to say, but Here's what all the statistics said to me. It is a pervasive problem, uh, and it's a pervasive problem in the church as well. And it's a pervasive problem among us, I'm sure. And so tonight, my real burden is that the Lord would open our hearts on this issue and would really grant faith for freedom and life change. Because Jesus is a freeing Savior that comes to give new life. And I believe that's what he wants to do for us. I mean, the the, probably the most conservative numbers I saw in, in that in our culture, um, seven to ten adult men uh, have looked at pornography in the last week, about 70 percent. Um, the, the church numbers aren't really different. As a matter of fact, one stat I looked at was worse in the church. This was actually self-professing Christians, 18 to 34. That was 77 percent. Uh, so it was actually higher in one study. I saw. But that's the general study. Um, one in five women have looked at pornography in the last week in our culture. So one of the opening points I want to make from the very beginning uh, that I have a real burden for uh, is that this is not a man problem. This is a human problem. About 10 years ago, uh, this, this topic would have only been addressed at a men's retreat and a men's Bible study and a men's accountability group. And maybe there was wide-scale um, sex, uh, women looking at pornography at that time. I don't know. But the statistics that have come out recently have really shown, especially with younger women, uh, especially with younger women, uh, that it is much more common. As a matter of fact, one of the largest pornography sites on the Internet, a hub site, uh, they, they did their analytics and published them, and they said that uh, one in four... 
so actually higher. One in four of their viewers were women, and the interesting thing was they time how long from some, some, someone clicks on until they leave the site, and women stayed longer than men uh, on the site. So this is a human issue. It's not an unbeliever issue. We're not addressing something out there. We're addressing something in here with us, and we're not just addressing men. We're not just addressing teenage boys. We're not just addressing singles. We're addressing teenage men and women. We're addressing married men and women. We're addressing all of us uh, because it is, a, it is, an, is an issue that's broad, and I think it's crippling the evangelical church like no other sin. I think the sin of lust, and pornography in particular, is crippling the evangelical church like nothing else because it brings a level of guilt and shame that causes people to hide in their sin, and sin blossoms in darkness, and the light kills it. And because it's not being brought into the light, it, it grows, and it spreads, and it destroys in people's lives. And so the freedom that the gospel brings to us, we often don't access because we don't open up what's going on in our lives. And the reason I'm sharing these stats at the beginning and speaking specifically to women is because if it, if it was ever acceptable culturally in evangelical Christianity to share a pornography problem or even a pornography addiction, it's probably more acceptable in men's circles because all the other guys in the circle, or many of them, may be looking at it. And so they're going, oh, yeah, okay. But a lot of ladies think I'm the only one, and this is a man problem. And I'm a young lady, and I don't want to tell anybody they'll think I'm a dirty old man or something like that. And so there's even more shame attached to it and embarrassment uh, sometimes. And so ladies don't come forth. So that's one of the reasons I'm making this comment, that this is for all of us to hear about. And I believe that God, we never escape lust this side of heaven, but I believe that God wants us to experience consistent victory. Nobody's perfect this side of heaven, but I believe the Lord has for us a consistent victory free from a life that is dominated by lust, empowered by the spirit to build an alternative society where the church is filled with people who are growing ever more in freedom in their lives in this area, that they are not remaining chained to the addictive power of lust and pornography, but God is freeing them to come alongside and help others experience the same freedom, an environment where it is okay to confess these kinds of sins. Now, before the Lord, it's not okay to live in that lifestyle of sin, you know, over the long term, but it is more than okay to struggle and confess that for the purpose of getting help, because if we don't, we never get help. And so I think that the Lord, it starts with working in that way to bring freedom to us. Now, the word pornography doesn't appear in the Bible. I don't know if you knew that, but if you don't read the Old Testament, maybe you wouldn't have known. So you've got to go to that class and find out things like this. But the word doesn't appear in the Bible, but the root cause um, does, and that is the word lust. And in one of the most memorable passages on lust in all the Bible is Matthew 5, where Jesus addressed this in verse 22 through, I'm sorry, 27 through 30. So I want to look at that, and then I want to open up this text and then uh, share on it. Verse 27, you have heard it said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right hand causes you to sin, Tear it out and throw it away, for it is better that you lose one of your members. Uh, I'm sorry, right eye. I've read it wrong. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out, throw it away, for it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away, for it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. So the first point here I want to talk about is a radical standard. Jesus is setting a radical, the listeners to him would have been blown away by what he's saying here. He is setting a radical standard. Radical means to the, I'm going to use that word a number of times tonight. It means to the root. It means getting to the fundamental issue. Jesus is getting to the root issue here. So he's raising a radical standard. It means something that is thorough and comprehensive, far reaching. And that describes what he's talking about. He is talking about a standard that is stringent. It is far-reaching. It is comprehensive. That's what he is talking about here. What he's doing is he's 
uh, he's talking about the Christian life, and he's largely addressing, uh, in some ways, the Pharisees. The Pharisees taught that, in essence, they, they held to, if you obey the external law, you are righteous, and they believed they ex- obeyed the external law, and so they were righteous. And in this chapter, Jesus is six times saying, you've heard it said, but I say, and then he's redefining it for them in the application. And so here, he is addressing the topic of adultery, which is the seventh commandment in Exodus twenty fourteen. You have heard it said, do not commit adultery. Yes, God said that in the Ten Commandments through Moses. But I say to you, and so what he's doing is he's going to the root of the commandment and to the Pharisees who say, I'm not sleeping with anybody I'm not married to, so I must be okay. And he is, he's saying, no, this issue is far more serious. The standard is much higher. Paul says not even a hint of sexual immorality. Jesus is saying it applies not just externally, but to the heart. Adultery, he's not, he's not saying that that commandment's no longer you know, in, it is still a binding commandment, do not commit adultery, but he's taking it to the heart. Adultery is having sex with someone else's spouse. It's having sex with a married person. The Bible shows, as we've, we've been over a number of weeks now, but if you knew, you would have missed this. The Bible teaches from the very beginning that God created Adam and Eve, and he created marriage as the joining of one man and one woman in a covenant for life. It is the joining of their lives together in a one flesh union, which is a joining of all that they are, not just their bodies. It is their bodies via sexual intercourse, drawing them together, but all that they are, all that they have, their heart, their spirit, their, all that they own. It's, it's everything being together in one flesh, part of which is the sexual union. Jesus says, he quotes that verse and says, the two will become one. So Jesus says, we had two people. Now we have one entity this married couple that is an entity. And we can easily lose sight of that, how important that is. That we've been talking about it now for, I think, six or seven weeks. But how important and what a high value God puts on marriage with one man and one woman joining their lives in sexual union. And it was so serious under the old covenant that to commit adultery was a capital offense. If you committed adultery, you were to be executed. And and the famous story of Jesus is the woman who is caught in adultery is brought out to be stoned. Why? Well, that's actually what the Old Testament uh, called for. So we can easily lose view that that adultery is just in movies and it is uh, in novels and it is in real life all around us. and, And we can just lose sight that sex with someone you're not married to is wrong. It's also wrong, not just because it's outside of God's design for marriage, but it's a kind of theft. It's a kind of stealing as well. Not that anybody owns anyone. They don't own their spouse. I'm not saying that. But they are now one entity in a one flesh relationship. And someone is inserting themselves into that relationship and taking one of the partners to join in a one flesh relationship. So there is a stealing that happens in this. There is uh, the person who is who is wronged is often called cheated. We call it, it's cheating or something like that. Even people who don't hold to what the scripture believe this is, this is that adultery is wrong and call it cheating. I mean, the last two weeks, the Ashley Madison scandal has shown that even people that don't believe in the Bible are offended and know there's something inherently wrong about getting on a website as a married person and looking to find someone to hook up with that's married and have an adulterous Affair. So even the culture resists that. So, so the adultery is still forbidden by Jesus. He's not changing that. But the Pharisees thought, well, I'm not doing that. I didn't go to the Ashley Madison website. I'm not sleeping with somebody else. I'm okay, is what they believed. And Jesus is showing no sin runs much deeper. Everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has committed adultery in his heart. So Jesus creates this new category of rebellion towards God called heart adultery. It's in the heart. You didn't actually do it, but you wanted to. And he says that that is wrong as well. The NIV translates it, anyone who looks at a woman lustfully. Now, the word lust, we hear that a lot, right? We talk about it. The word lust, um, at, a, at a fundamental level, is not necessarily a bad word. It's the word desire. Now, it's translated lust in context like this because it is a bad word. It is a wrong. It's a wrongful desire. Lust is a desire for something that God forbids. 
So there are desires that are natural or God-given that are not wrong in themselves. The desire for sex and sexual attraction, God came up with that and put it in people. The desire for sex is not a wrongful desire. The desire for sex with someone that you're not married to, that's when it becomes lust. That's when it is wrong because it is an out-of-bounds desire that God has forbidden for the reasons that I've just stated. So looking and desiring and longing for and fantasizing about someone you're not married to is sin. Actually, whether they're married or not, if you're not married to them, it's sinful. So we could say it this way. Desire for sexual sin is sexual sin. And that's what's blowing them out of the water when Jesus says that. They're saying, hey, I haven't committed adultery. I'm sexually righteous. Desire for sexual sin is sexual sin. Longing for sexual sin. Longing for sex with the person you're married to? No, that's not sin. That's good, holy, right, enjoyable. Go for it. Wonderful. God endorses that tremendously. But if it's someone we're not married to, then it is sin. Now, let's don't be a Pharisee with the commandment, because I know he says, if anyone looks at a woman... Uh, with lustful intent. So he's speaking to men, but this is broader than that. So the command is any, ultimately it would apply to any sexual desire that is forbidden by God. So it could be a man longing to have sex with a man forbidden by God, a woman longing to have sex with a woman, a single man desiring a single woman that he's not married to, a single woman desiring a single man that she's not married to, any kind of longing desire to have sex, fantasy, imagination, craving, looking, thinking, longing, these kinds of things for someone that are not married to, this is what Jesus is talking about. And so what Jesus is really saying, everybody's guilty. He's cutting the legs out from the sexual uh, righteousness, the sexual, sexually self-righteous. That's what I'm going to say. The sexually self-righteousness of the Pharisees and anyone else. It's like anybody says, well, I haven't looked at pornography. You said, well, I'm in, that, I'm in those numbers that haven't looked. Okay, the Lord wants to cut out from under you the sexual self-righteousness that you're standing on and saying, have you ever looked at someone, longed for someone you're not married to and wanted to be with them sexually? Have you ever been stimulated? Maybe you looked at pornography, but you've read romance novels, uh, romance erotica, ex- explicit stuff in, in that sort of thing. Have you ever looked at something like that, thought that? Have you ever looked and, and, and had eyes that have followed and looked and longed for someone you're not married to? He, he's saying everybody is guilty, and so everybody needs a savior. And that's the ultimate point is that people would hear this and say, whoa, I thought I was okay because I'm not committing adultery. I'm not okay. Jesus, forgive me. Jesus, change me so that I walk in righteousness. The point of the Sermon on the Mount here is to call everybody to come running to Jesus so that the people who think I don't need him, I'm okay, repent and say, oh, I need him. That's what Jesus is doing in this passage. Now, this passage is about way more than pornography. But as I said in my introduction, I think in our day, the most enslaving temptation to sexual sin is pornography because it's so accessible. One author writing about sex, last, last week I gave a quote from Martin Luther saying, oh yeah, uh, desiring, tr- tr- not having sex before marriage, yes, it's a real battle, like being imprisoned, like being naked in the cold and not having anything, like being, he was like, yes, it's a huge battle. Right after that quote, which I read you, the author talked about Luther's day and just said, Martin Luther said, this is a real battle. And yet in Martin Luther's day, a young man may have gotten a glimpse at a girl's legs when she lifted her skirt a little bit to stomp on grapes. Okay, so the world he was living in, whereas right now anybody in the room can pull up people having sex on their phone. We are the world we live in has never I mean, lust is a matter of the heart. So the Pharisees have to hear this. Okay. Martin Luther day had to hear this, but our day, we're living in a world of accessibility that just makes the opportunity for temptation that much stronger in our day. And I saw this in multiple studies. The estimation is that 90% of kids have seen a pornographic image or have seen pornography by the age of 16, 90%. And the average age of first exposure is 11. Stuff that in, in previous generations people would have never seen until they had sex with someone they weren't married or had sex with the person they married, but would have never seen that. 
would have just never seen that in their culture. And yet now the average exposure would be 11, usually to enter. speaking of internet pornography on that. So we are all faced with the temptation, um, and it is all around. But the heart behind it is this, it is lust. It is desiring something or someone that the Lord has forbidden me to have and to be with and to express um, a sexual relationship with. And also, because of the, uh, the, the availability in terms of the Internet, it always comes with two promises that no one will ever know and no one will ever be harmed. No one will know, so it's not going to matter, and no one's hurt by this. There's really no victim in this. I mean, no one's really, is it that big of a deal? And Jesus says, yes, it's a very big deal, and we'll see in a minute how big a deal it is. He's recommending gouging out eyeballs. That's a pretty sharp statement. So he's thinking it's a very big deal to lust uh, is what he's talking about here. So he's, he's destroying the idea that there's no harm in looking. There's no harm in imagining. You know, as long as you don't eat any of the food, there's no harm in checking out the menu is the idea. And he's saying, no, it is, it is wrong to be looking uh, and to be longing and to be desiring someone that you are not married to. Now, what is wrong with pornography in particular? And, and if you've been here for the whole series, this will make a lot of sense to you. What's wrong with it in particular is that it is fundamentally defies God's good de- design for sex and for marriage. It defies God's good design. What God has um, called us to experience in marriage and the way God has designed sex to be experienced in the most meaningful, relationally driven, fulfilling way is for a married couple where there's commitment and trust and, um, and a life shared together. That's where sex is to be experienced. And yet pornography, for a number of reasons, it's built off the lustful heart, which wants something that we're not designed to have and to receive. And then that's what it goes after. It, it, it builds upon that lust and desire and really has an enslaving, addictive quality to it that draws people in where it can actually become entirely enslaving to their life and just rule, rule over their lives. So let me say a few things about what, why pornography is wrong given God's design of sex, why lust is wrong, why lust wants something God forbids. Why are those things forbidden? Let me talk about that in pornography. I'm going to talk about several things, but about six or seven things here pretty quickly. Number one, pornography is about lustfully desiring, seeing, and devouring people that I'm not married to. That's what it's about. I've already been saying this, but that's what it's about. It's about seeing people sexually and fantasizing about people sexually that I have not joined my life to in a lifelong covenant commitment. That, that's fundamentally it. When naked people are doing stuff on the computer screen or on the TV screen or wherever you're looking at it, on your phone, or on your tablet, when they're doing I am not in a covenant relationship with those people. And so I, I am not to be viewing them in ways that only their spouse should see. And I'm not to desire them because they may or may not be married, but I am. And I'm not called. That's, a, that's hard adultery. I'm not... I'm not uh, I'm not to be looking at them from that. That represents sexual immorality from the heart. Number two, pornography is selfish, not selfless. God's design for sexual intimacy is selflessness. When we read the Song of Solomon, it was about offering oneself to one's spouse. First Corinthians, we look at the passage that Paul talks about. It is about offering oneself to one's spouse. Spouse, consuming pornography is all about finding my fantasies and my desires online. Pornography has nothing to do with loving, serving, or caring for another person. And God designed that sex only be experienced in a relationship where there is love and tenderness and care. The image he uses is actually sacrificial love, that a husband would sacrificially lay down his life for his wife in the relationship, and that fosters a healthy, passionate sexual relationship. But pornography has nothing like that. Pornography is all about the viewer finding pleasure or the viewer, uh, uh, you you know, the viewer's curiosity about what's out there and and finding it. And so it's it's not... uh, 
So it's self-oriented. It's what pleases me. It's not what pleases another person. So it's not only sexually immoral, but for, let me say something to the singles. For the single person that watches pornography, whether you're in middle school, high school, college, 50 years old, whatever, the single person who watches pornography, who will be married, what you are doing is you are in training. You are actually like in the gym in training. You are in training for a sexual relationship that will be the exact opposite of what God designs. Because every time you look at porn and satisfy yourself watching porn, what you are teaching yourself is this is about me. This is about what pleases me. This has nothing to do with loving another person. So you are in training. And there are married couples who will tell you, singles, there are married couples who will tell you that our sex life, we're still trying, and there's grace, God can change all of that, but we're still trying to have a appropriate sexual relationship because one of the partners in the marriage has given themselves over to pornography for months, years, decades, and their mind has been trained and their affections and their sexual desire has been trained for what serves me. So you're training yourself. And I know if you're 14 years old, you're saying, okay, yeah, I'm not going to be married for a long time. I'm just saying it really matters. It really, really does matter because it will matter to you one day. For the married person, it's inviting someone else into the private garden of your sexual bliss. Remember when we read Song of Solomon? Sexual intimacy is a garden that they shared together. It's poetry, if you weren't here, not literally. They weren't having sex out in a garden. It's a, it was a metaphor that this is uh, it's something private and special and shared. So you are inviting other people in to that um, by looking at them, at least in your mind you are. And you are not cultivating service to your spouse in the garden. You're out of the garden thinking about other people and getting in a mental garden with them, to to borrow the imagery. So pornography is fundamentally selfish, selfish and not selfless. Biblical sex is based on love, and that is always selfless. And when you have two people trying to out... Uh, a pleasure, bless, bless is the nice church word, pleasure, I guess is the other word, but if out pleasure the other person, that makes for a great sex life rather than two people who are trained in selfishness or one who's trained in selfishness. Number three, pornography separates sex from a relationship. Sex is designed and the greatest sexual pleasure and fulfillment is experienced in a lifelong covenant marriage. Sex is not designed, sex is not designed as a solo affair with someone looking at someone on a screen. I'm just saying that's not how God created. He created something way better than a solo affair watching someone on a screen. God created, some, God created the joining of, of one flesh union, and a one flesh relationship. Bodies joined together, as we've talked about. As the, uh, Genesis 2 says, naked and not ashamed. Sex flows from a committed relationship of two lives joined together, not the fantasy life of one person looking at other people online. Number four, pornography portrays an unbiblical view of sexuality. Pornography portrays an unbiblical view of sexuality. Pornography represents much more than just having sex. Listen, pornography is a worldview. I don't know if you've thought about this. Pornography is a, it is a worldview. It is an ideology. So as a Christian, if we look at that, we are we're filling our mind with another ideology and another worldview. I mean, if you compare it to Song of Solomon, you read through Song of Solomon, which is God's worldview of sexuality. We read about passion. We read about romance. We read about speech that is gracious and loving and affirming and adoring to the spouse and honors them. It is, it is, uh, it is, there is sexual thrill. There is ecstatic anticipation for the next time they can be together. Um, there is a privacy about it for the couple together. It builds them together. It's, I mean, just think about it. It's mutual. It's respectful. It's cherishing. It's unifying. It's intimate. It deepens their relationship. So that, like I said, they long to be back together. The view of pornography, at least male-driven pornography, is women are objects. Women have... Women are... Back up. Women are objects for male sexual pleasure. That's what pornography teaches. And that's a worldview. 
That is a worldview. The most ironic thing in the world to me, most ironic thing, is that secular feminists would support the right of women to participate in typical pornography. Because women are meat in pornography. They are objects. They, are, they exist for the man's lustful pleasure, both on the screen, both in the film, if it's a film, and those watching. In the Bible, women are cherished. Wives are to be cherished. In pornography, women are trashed for the fulfillment of the man. One study was done a few years ago where they surveyed that they found the top 30 watched, I don't know if these were downloaded or purchased combination. I, don't, I didn't get all the detail, but I got enough of it. They, 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 um, they looked at the top, most popular, the top 30 films, pornography films of a year, pornographic films of a year. And they went through, tough job, went through and noted every scene, every action that happened in the movies. And this was, this was not done by Christians. This wasn't a fundamentalist saying porn is bad. This was done by an academic sociological journal. And the academic journal said the study found 88% of porn with a man and a woman had some form of aggression against the woman, either verbal or physical aggression. 88% had that somewhere in the movie. That is training people, training men on how to view women. 88%. So they're not calling them the names that porn, the guy in porn's calling the woman distasteful, demeaning names. Song of Solomon saying, you are a lily among the brambles. Every other woman's a thorn bush and you are glorious. That's biblically how a man is to treat a woman and how he's to speak to her. And he's not to rough her up and slap her and whatever else, treat her for, like she's just existent for his pleasure. So pornography teaches an unbiblical view of sexuality, and we have a generation of people, of young men, growing up, being trained on what to expect their sex life will be like. That they're going to marry someone who, without any kind of relationship or care or whatever, is just there at a snap to fulfill my needs, just like I can click a computer and fulfill my needs. And they're going to have a very rude awakening when they're married because people don't act like that. Real women aren't honored and appreciate that. So it teaches an unbiblical view of sexuality. Number five, pornography is dehumanizing. That's another reason. It's a, the lust of pornography is against the biblical design of marriage. It's dehumanizing. When you read Song of Solomon, it is the most, it is humanity on fire. Man, it is lit up humanity. It is honoring. Man, it's got... That guy sees the image of God in his woman. And she sees the image of God in him. When Adam sees Eve, it's like bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. He's worshiping God. Thank you. Pornography dehumanizes. It objectifies, and this is true for men and women. It objectifies people as sex objects. Lust always dehumanizes Let's get off pornography. When we stare at someone we're not married to and fantasize being with them, uh, fantasize ladies, him embracing you, and uh, maybe it's not some big sexual thing, but you're married, but you imagine what would it be like to be married to him? And so maybe it's not as dirty as pornography. Maybe it's just something else. Lust always dehumanizes. You ladies have made that man an object to fulfill some longing and need in you that God is called to fulfill and that God has provided a husband or will provide one for you. So that's, that's dehumanizing. That's dehumanizing. It fantasizes that someone else is there to, to be consumed for my pleasure. I'm to consume someone else for my pleasure. They're dehumanized. And here's the reality. The way we look at people, lust trains us. The way we look at people online, pretty soon we'll start looking at people in real life the same way. And so we'll just begin to look around and what would it be like to be with them? And they're just they're here for me. They're here to serve me. It, 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 it goes over. Pornography is enslaving, number six. Here's why it's enslaving. Because he's saying this is heart, uh, lustful intent. Uh, it's heart adultery. Lust is never satisfied. Lust is never satisfied. When we give ourselves to lust, and we can give ourselves to lust in a lot of ways. Like I said, it can be looking at people we know. Uh, it could be through romance novels. It could be through what is now, and you'd be very familiar with these by, by title, 
Uh, it, it would be what's now being called mommy porn, which is porn that's not as explicit necessarily, but it's for ladies that are not teenagers, but a little bit older. Like the Fifty Shades of Grey would be in the category of mommy porn. The uh, Magic Mike movies would be in the category of mommy porn. It could be something like that. It could be our imaginations. It could be pornography. Whatever it is, it never satisfies. It never fulfills. That's the nature of sin. Sin never satisfies. Matter of fact, the more we give ourselves to lust and sin, it just pours gas on the fire so that you want more, so that our consciences are desensitized, so the next time the same thing doesn't fulfill us. That's why there's all manner of perversion uh, in internet pornography where you look at no one just one day said, hey, I would like to think about something the Bible talks about, bestiality, sex with animals. Hey, I would like to see that. No, that started, that, that's a trail. That's, that's a perversion that you end up with because you started somewhere else and this, okay, I got used to this. That's not satisfying. Now I got to see something more. Now I got to see something more. Now I got to see something more, something new that's titillating that I'm curious about. And what's that like? And lust just longs for more, more, more. And it's never satisfied. I read Song of Solomon and I say this side of heaven, no one's ever completely satisfied. Still haven't found what I'm looking for. Remember that song? So, there, so until we get to heaven, we're never completely satisfied until we see Jesus. But there is to be a great contentment and satisfaction in this side of heaven, in Christ, and in the gifts he gives. And when I read Song of Solomon, I say, there's some satisfied people. There's some people enjoying one another and themselves. Lust never satisfies. More, 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 more. Porn is like a drug. I'm not going to get into this for sake of time, but I studied, there's a lot of studies being done on physiologically the pleasure centers of the brain and how pornography works just the exact same way as drug addiction. Uh, you don't get the shakes and withdrawal it to, you know, to not look at porn. You, it's not like if you're a, addicted to a substance like cocaine or heroin or something, but the effects are exactly the same that there's a desensitization and you've got to have more and more and more. And so that's lust. I just talked about the body, but it's really a hard thing. Lust is never satisfied because you'll always need something more to give you the same rush. And that leads to point seven, that pornography destroys marriage because at some point for the married person, at some point, the rush is just not there with quote, real sex, unquote, because you're watching things that are staged and are fantasized. And all of a sudden this is not going to cut it. And so the, the amazing thing is that people that are, that are addicted to pornography often have way, uh, way fewer sexual experiences in their marriage. A lot of people that are addicted to pornography and are married because their, their, their pleasure level is set at a different, has been reset by their lusts, then all of a sudden a real person that you're married to that doesn't look like somebody in the movie, who if you saw the person in the movie in real life, like when they woke up in the morning, you saw them all, they probably didn't look like that either. It's a fantasy. Lust is deceptive. All of a sudden, the spouse isn't the same because it's not about a relationship. It's about a physical release and an imagination. So pornography crushes the intimacy of marriage. Um, Intimacy, sexual intimacy, it blossoms where there is committed trust, fidelity, and security. That's true for men and women, especially true for women, I can generalize. But true for men, too. No man's going to trust his wife who's out thinking about somebody else, pursuing someone else. It goes both ways. Where there is trust and security and openness, there is much better intimacy relationally. Where there's better intimacy relationally, there's better intimacy sexually. Um, But if a spouse knows that the other is engaging and actively looking at porn, then the spouse doesn't feel like, the wife doesn't feel like you are a lily among the thorns. She doesn't feel that way. And a husband doesn't feel like if his wife's looking at porn and looking at all this, reading all these other things, uh, erotica, maybe she's reading instead of visualizing, seeing. But same thing, she's not feeling like, wow, he's saying that I stand, I'm the apple tree. Remember that picture? Uh, he's the apple tree among all of them. She doesn't feel that way. He, he feels like she's dissatisfied. So we say, hey, I'm single, so that doesn't really apply to me. Well, as I said before, you are training yourself right now for your future sexual relationship. You're training right now. And the Lord wants to help you and free you so that you are prepared for that. Sexual lust, it obviously dishonors God because it looks for pleasure outside of his design. 
It dishonors your spouse or your future spouse if you're single. It dishonors the spouse of the person you're lusting after. It dishonors the person created in the image of God that is prostituting himself or herself on a screen to make money. That person's created in the image of God, and I'm looking at them like meat when I'm looking at pornography. And so it dishonors them. Well, they chose to be there. Well, maybe they said yes the first time, but many of them are victimized in a process as well. And as the ladies in particular oftentimes can't get out of it. So the Lord wants to free us from this. And so he calls us to radical measures because he's got freedom. He's got something much better for us. I'm, I'm saying all the stuff of why it's, uh, it's, it's, it doesn't fulfill, but God wants you fulfilled. He wants you joyous in him personally. And so he says, you've got to take radical measures if you want to know his freedom. So what does he say? Well, he says, if you're right, I, so radical measures, first of all, radical standards, secondly, radical measures, if your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out. If your right hand causes you to sin, uh, you know, cut it off. That, that, is, that is serious. He says to the Pharisees, you're not okay just because you're not jumping in the bed of somebody you're not married to. If you want to. Desire for sexual sin, sexual sin. So if you want to, I suggest you rip your eyeball out instead of looking at that guy. I suggest you cut your hand off rather than doing things that are wrong, stealing from that relationship, whatever you would do. Uh, I, I say, cut, cut your hand off, po- poke your eye out. Now he's not literally saying to do that. I mean, there's a famous or infamous story of an early church father, Origen, who battled lust, Christian early church father, scholar who castrated himself um, so that he wouldn't lust anymore. Now, whenever somebody told him exegetically that wasn't literal, I'm, I'm sure, oh, wow, man, I, that was bad. But uh, if he found that, oh, we're not supposed to take that literally. That's like emphasis. He's trying to make a point here. Um, so so what, are, what are the points he's trying to make? He's trying to say, cut yourself off from anything that tempts you. This is so serious. Cut off anything that would lead you into sin. Anything that would lead you down the pathway to lust. Anything that would hinder you. So what is that for you? What is it to cut myself off from that? Is it something about your computer or making yourself accountable on your computer? Or is it certain places you go with certain people? Uh, I, I, I don't know. I, can't, I didn't come up with a list of everything it could be. You would know what it would be. What would it would be to cut your hand off? What would it be to separate yourself from what is causing you to fall. That's what he's saying. If your eye causes you to sin, if looking, if it, because lust comes through sight. So if sight is what is calling you, then you need to do something really radical. What, what Jesus cut your eye out, pull your eye out. That's what he says. Radical measures. I don't know what it is for you, but here's what I think it is for everybody in a Christian church who's struggling in these areas. I, I think it's getting serious about it and taking no prisoners and saying, by the grace of God and the power of the Spirit, I'm going after this now, permanently. There's, if, you're, if you're a pornography user, and we are in this room, there are, there's probably nothing more important right now that you go after in your spiritual life because it will squeeze the life out of every area of your spiritual life. And so there's nothing more going on. So he's saying, what, what causes you? There's, there's nothing too radical. I can't think of anything more radical. I mean, I can't personally think of anything more radical than ripping my eyeball. That's like that, man, I don't even like to touch my eye. That is the most radical thing I can, that's why I wear contacts. I, I can't even imagine ripping my eye out. But Jesus is saying, that's how you need to think about it. Taking radical measures. What sin is a cancer. And if you've got a tumor inside of you, you've got to do something radical. You've got to cut it out. You've got to shoot it up with radiation. You got to drink chemicals that kill it, whatever stuff you would never do normally. You got to do whatever it takes to kill that because it will kill you if you don't get at it. And that's what he's saying here. It's not a small thing. You got to kill it, kill it before it kills you. And I think one way we do that is by exposing it to the light. It's by taking it out of the darkness and bringing it into the light. And for some of us, that's the most radical thing imaginable to tell someone. I'm going to read you a testimony right now about this. This is someone sent me this testimony this week, a man in our church. So this, I didn't get this off the internet. This is, this is someone in our church who sent me this testimony. Here's what's amazing about this. This person did not know the text I was going to preach on. They knew I was preaching on pornography. They did not know the text. This is what the gentleman writes. The first time I was exposed to pornography was at the age of 11. 
My friend's brother worked at a convenience store and was able to get us some pornographic magazines. I remember retreating to the woods with my friends to look at the magazines. We just looked and read and laughed. There was no real sexual attraction. But what I think was happening was I believe we began to be educated by the content. We saw and read things the next couple of years that 11 and 12-year-olds should, should not see. We began to think of girls in terms of what we read in the magazines. As I began to grow and mature, I began to view more and more pornography. But the desire for more, view, more than viewing began to grow. I began to act on sexual desires through self-gratification. As technology evolved, the computer and the Internet were not a tool for me to connect to people and access information as much as it was a way to feed this growing desire. When I hit high school, I was already heavily addicted to pornography. I was viewing porn and pleasing myself up to four times a day. My relationships with girls had one end in mind. And all the while, no one really knew that anything was wrong. I kept up all the necessary appearances and even claimed to be a Christian as I regularly attended church and youth group. This pattern continued right up into the end of high school when the Lord supernaturally opened my eyes to the gospel and I put my faith fully in him. I broke all ties with my old way of living and even stopped viewing pornography. The problem I had, though, was that I had not realized the power and addiction that pornography had on my life. I didn't heed Jesus' warning in Matthew 5 to cut off my right hand. I did have a few accountability groups in college that helped me to confess and realize that almost every other Christian that I knew had a similar struggle. Slowly, I began to slip back into old habits. I would slip up once, repent, and confess. The issue, though, was that I began to struggle more and slip up more. My guilt would grow, and I would end up only confessing some of it to the accountability group. I would say things like, hey, I slipped up a few times this week, guys. Can you pray for me? When really, if I was honest, I would say, guys, I looked at porn at least once every day this past week and even on the way over here. I had done what I believe many of us are guilty of. I had an accountability group that actually only helped enable the problem because I would only be honest enough and convicted enough to make everyone, including myself, feel convinced that I was doing fine. Accountability groups are great. But for me, I confessed only what I was comfortable confessing. I was trying to wage war on sin on my own, and I was losing the battle. As you can guess, the sin began to fester in the dark and began to choke the life out of any spiritual growth I had. While appearing to grow on the outside and have fruit, I was dying from the inside and needing help. During this season, I successfully dated and married a wonderful godly woman. We surprisingly did not have sex before we got married, but we did have some struggles while engaged. After being married for a little while, I began to find that the same porn and masturbation was not enough to satisfy, and I began to look for real secret relationships to satisfy the desires I had. I began to look to the possibility, looking to the possibility of a secret hookup with a stranger that I would meet online. I began to go to dating websites and finally found an escort service online. I contacted one of the ladies and coordinated a place to meet. I ended up feeling too ashamed and guilty and actually backed out. I would sometimes visit strip clubs, and the desire festered for some more time until finally one day I went through with the act and had sex with a prostitute. The overwhelming guilt and shame was almost too much to bear. I confessed to the Lord, repented, and promised never to do that again. By God's grace, I was able to keep that promise, but I still found myself addicted to and still going back to my old habits of porn use. This continued until finally one day, almost out of the blue, while reading a book on marriage, I was overcome by this heavy burden of guilt. The author asked married couples to confess dark secrets of their past to one another. I was so overcome by, with guilt, and I felt as though the Lord audibly said, you need to tell your wife what happened. But Lord, I thought that was a long time ago, and now we have children. What if she leaves me? I felt the Lord remind me of Matthew 5, 29 through 30. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It's better that you lose one of your members than your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away, for it is better that you lose one of your members than your whole body go into hell. I decided to confess to my wife. I coordinated a trusted couple to meet with us, and on the way I confessed to my wife. As I confessed, I felt the huge burden lift from me as tears streamed down both of our faces. I'll never forget the comfort the pain, the sorrow, and the joy in her words, I forgive you. I knew that my sin and my past 
I knew that my sin and my past, the burden that I had carried was lighter, not because it was gone, but because it was being carried by my spouse as well. I am now free from my addiction. I have not, and by God's grace, will not view any more pornography or anything of that sort. It, it, free from the moment of confession is the testimony. After he confessed, then he is, he, he's not looked anymore. I believe true repentance and true confession is what the Lord used to free me of that addiction. I believe that what set me free was a combination of the sacrifice of being willing to have my world, as I know it, come crashing down for the sake of God's glory and the act of confession. When the sin was brought into the light, only then was it finally able to be put to death. My warning to those who are here today who have similar porn addictions is that the sin will only continue to grow in the dark. The sinful pattern I started at 10 carried all the way into a permanent damage in my marriage. Please don't take pornography lightly. Please don't assume that everyone looks at it so it's normal. The vast majority may look at it, but it's still a sinful abomination before the Lord. Come to the light. Seek help and healing and be freed from your burden. That would look different for everybody. I'm not saying you do exactly what he did, but I'm saying it would look different for everybody. But the point is that bringing sin to the light is what crushes it. And so we want to help on this. We want to help. And so here's what we're going to do. We're going to offer groups for men and women who are struggling with pornography. Not just at the level of the man and the testimony. It, it may not need, it's not, uh, it's not an addiction necessarily, but it's someone that you say, I am struggling And so we're going to offer what we're going to call freedom groups because the point of the group is to experience the freedom that Jesus bought for us in the gospel, the freedom this man now experiences, which the Lord wants for all of us. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to have a men's group uh, that Pete Payne is going to lead along with uh, Aaron Paul, who is a leader in our, actually in our youth ministry in the church. So those two guys are going to lead that one. And then Ann Bailey is going to lead a group for women. If you would like to be in this group, well, how do I know? How much do I have to look at porn? If, if you've looked at porn one time in the last 20 years, this group's not for you. If you're, it's not a struggle for That's not what we're talking about. But if you say, I struggle with lust, it's an active struggle in my life. I struggle. I'm not going to say how often you, you determine, are you free? Are you free from viewing pornography and free from lust being a dominating sin in your life. Not free from lust, because there is no one like that. But I'm free for this. This is, you know, th- this is not a dominating sin in my life. It's just not a, you know, I'm not struggling with pornography like that. Then it's not for you. But if you say, I struggle with pornography, then you are invited to email them. Their emails are up on the screen. I've never in the history of preaching said, I think you should be on your smartphone in a sermon. But if you're convicted right now, I'd say you need to email one of them right now. As soon as this meeting is over, you need to send an email. You need to send an email, and you need to say, I need help. I'm in your group. I'm in. All you need to say, give them your name. I am in. And let them know you're in the group. They're going to start on the 12th of September. They're going to meet on Saturday mornings. They'll give you the other details. I don't know where they're going to meet. Or... So it's a private group. It's confidential. Just the people in that group are in there. But here's what's going to happen. Uh, I'm serious. If you, here's cutting off your hand is saying, as soon as this meeting's over, I'm sending an email. I'm writing that down. I'm sending an email. I will not go to sleep. What's not cutting your hand off is saying, well, I haven't looked in a week and I'm doing pretty good. I mean, it's been a whole week since I've looked at it. I think I'm okay. What I'll do is I'll just wait. And the next time I look at porn, then I'll email Lorianne or I'll email Pete or I'll email, uh, Aaron. Then that is not cutting off your hand. That is saying, I'm going to hold my sin. I'm going to live with my sin. And the reason I'm saying this so firmly is I want you to be free. There is freedom. Jesus is calling you to freedom. The Father's arms are open to welcome you and to forgive you. There's a group of people who who are common strugglers that want to help one another, speak the truth in love, encourage one another. God has freedom for you. But you've got to walk to him. And you've got to say, I'm taking radical measures 
and I'm not putting it off and I'm not saying, oh yeah, I mean, we would have started this next Saturday, but it's Labor Day weekend and we didn't want to start with people out of town and they didn't get to come and, oh, I missed the first meeting and so then I'll go, I, I, I know all that, I rationalize my sin. That's how I know all these examples. Because I'm a rationalizer. I know. Oh yeah, I couldn't make it at the first meeting. I, I'll catch it. They'll probably do it again in, in January. You really want to live in slavery until January? You really want to live back? You could get freedom. The Lord could meet you in a powerful way. They're going to go through some excellent material, some study material together. Pray for one another. So there will not be a table about this out there. It's only email. You send a private email and they will respond back to you and tell you this. Why is this so important? Because there's a radical standard. There's radical measures because there's, I'm closing with this. There's a radical warning. Look what he says. If your right hand, verse 30, cause you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than your whole body go into hell. Is Jesus saying that if you're a Christian and you watch porn, you lost your salvation, you're going to hell? No, that is not what he's saying. But here's what he is saying. That if you are given to lust and you are not willing to repent, you're not willing to do radical things. What's more radical than popping your eyeball out? Nothing. You're not willing to be radical about it, to get free, to access and receive the free grace of God because he loves you and wants to free you. If you're not willing to receive his help and come to him and walk in the light and you're willing to live in a pattern of lust over weeks and months and be okay with that, then you need to question whether you're even a Christian. I didn't say if you're enslaved to pornography, you're not a Christian. I said, if you can live that way and you won't repent and you won't turn and you won't access help, then you're on the road to hell because unrepentant sin, unwillingness, embracing and going on in any kind of sin that God has pointed out to us that we know is wrong, that we're convicted of and just blowing that off and never responding that person needs to say, am, do I know the Lord? Because if the Holy Spirit's in me, he is going to speak. And if I'm following him, I'm going to respond. So if you struggle with porn, I'm not saying you're going to hell. I need to be really clear on that. But I am saying if lust is a lifestyle over the long term, when opportunities like this, where God is calling out and saying, repent, he's coming to you and saying, I want to help you. I love you. I'm your father. I want to get you out of your chains. I want to show you something so much better. I want to change your marriage and the relationship, including the sexual relationship. I want to free you up so that when you are married, it's going to be better than anything you saw in a video or could imagine. Because it's going to be relationally driven. I want to free you for that. The Lord is on your side. He wants to free you. He gave his life. He died for these sins so that we could be free from them, forgiven and empowered to change. And if repeatedly I will not respond to him, then I should not have assurance of my. I should question, at least question. I don't want any of us to have a false assurance of salvation. So I hope you understand what I'm saying. Sinners go to heaven. Because the only people living are sinners. But people who willfully live in unrepentant sin and will not change regardless of the grace of God being extended to, to change them, that person should not have an assurance that they're a Christian. That's what I'm saying. And that's why he's talking about hell here. And we could do this with other sins as well. Just that's the context he says here. Let me close with this. Run to God. Listen to these words. Last week we said flee immorality. So flee immorality means you've got to run away. Run away from lust and pornography. But you've got to run somewhere. And you run into the arms of the Lord. Listen to this from Paul Tripp. This is on a book called, I highly recommend. It's called Sex and Money. Great title. Sex and Money. This is what he says. Here's the point. If you think that God's love is at stake, that he will withdraw it when you mess up, then in your moment of failure, you will run from him and not to him. But if you believe in your deepest moment of sexual foolishness, weakness, failure, or rebellion, that when you run to him, he will greet you with arms of redemptive love, then it makes no sense to hide from him or separate yourself from his care. Here's the bottom line. In your struggle with sex, your love for God is never your hope. Hope is to be found only in his love for you. 
since he loves you. He wants what's best for you and will work to defeat the enemies of your soul until the last enemy has been defeated and your struggle is no more. If you're a Christian, you have experienced the love of God. He's adopted you. He loves you. And if you're not secure in that, you'll run from him. But if you're secure in that, why wouldn't you run to him? Why wouldn't we run to him? Why wouldn't I go running into his arms of help and love and forgiveness and empowering to change? And he's going to use me bringing that into the light and drawing the body of Christ around me and some good counsel to help me. That's what he has for us. So run into his arms and experience his freedom. And let's put the, I want, if you wouldn't mind, could we just put the email addresses up for the rest of the evening? I, I don't even, they shouldn't even come down and last, last light out in the building of these email addresses so that if you private, we want to write them down when people aren't looking. Hey, I get all that. Um, that's fine. You can write down. We'll put it up on the city too so you can get it. But email them tonight. I'm in. I'm in. This is my email to say, cut my hand off right here. <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm in. Help me. Or I want to be in. I want to repent. I'm not quite there, but I want to. And I'm making myself accountable by sending you this email. I want to hate my sin. Pray for me and tell me when the group meets. I want to be there. I want. Okay, so all you can say is, hey, I want to be there. Email them tonight and then you're accountable. But you'll rationalize this away by tomorrow morning. Let's pray. You've been listening to a message from Grace Church. For more information, visit our website or write us at podcast at gracechurchfrisco.org.